Over the winter break, I was thinking about what to share uh, at, at this first chapel because I wanted to kind of kick things off. And I was reflecting upon the last chapel of last semester. Do you remember the last chapel of last semester? Uh, our, our former dean of students, uh, Scott Morningstar, gave a great message from John 3 on he must increase and I must decrease. And I was, I was thinking it would be great to link the last chapel of last semester to the first chapel of this semester. And so this morning I want to talk about and share with you from God's word on the preeminence of Christ. And the, the subtitle is Keeping Jesus First as a Bible College Student. And I want you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 if you have a copy of the scriptures. Maybe it's digital, maybe it's printed. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we will have some of them up on the screen. But I still would like you to open your Bible if you have one with you. One of my favorite portions of scripture is in Colossians chapter 1. And so, um, just in honor of God's word, would you stand as I read this portion of scripture? Colossians chapter 1, verses 13, or excuse me, yeah, 13, 14 through 20. Uh, 13 through 20. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. We'll stop right there. You may be seated. So I want to link together the last message and the first message of this semester. He must increase, I must decrease, and talk about this concept of the preeminence of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. Um, if Jesus is to increase in our lives and we are to decrease, um, as Scott challenged us, we must make him the very focal point, the locus of our attention, our affection, and our desire until we see Christ for all that he is and begin to enjoy and experience that intimate union with him, I think we'll miss out on one of the greatest opportunities that we will have to be here at Bible College. And so I've chosen this text to help us kind of dive into that. And you know, the word preeminence is one that's kind of an interesting word. Um, it's, it means superior, it means predominant, it means supreme, it means the first overall. You know, I'd like to share a little story um, about something that happened uh, a few years ago, and uh, you might remember this. Uh, it was the Great American Eclipse. How many of you remember this? How many of you got a chance to see it? How many of you got a chance to be in the path of totality? Okay, a few less. Well, my son and I, Jacob is his name, we were headed to Colorado Christian University in the Denver area. This was him leaving home and heading off to college. Well, it happened to be the day that he, we needed to leave, it happened to be the day of the eclipse. And so we decided that we were going to leave earlier than anticipated. It was a two-day drive anyway. We're going to leave really early in the morning and get away from the crowds that were expected in my hometown, Bend, Oregon, and particularly just north of us, Madras was supposed to be part of that line of totality. And they were 
expecting huge crowds. So we said, we're going to take off 4 o'clock in the morning, 5 in the morning, and get on the road and go over to eastern Oregon. And we mapped it all out. And we decided we were going to find this spot just north of a little city called Vail, little town near Ontario, Oregon. And, and we, we found it. We, we got on this back road, went about 20 miles up the road. And there were a few other people, but not many. And we camped there, and we, we got there about 20, 30 minutes ahead of the time. I, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, the last time this happened in the United States was 1979. But in, in about 94 minutes, the sun would cross, or the moon would cross in front of the sun, and, and there would that, be that path of totality across the entire United States. And so we were, were heading out there. It was really an amazing experience. Um, and we wanted to take some photographs, because Jacob is into photography kind of like I am. And so here, here we are, uh, uh, August 21st, uh, about 6.30 in the morning, heading east uh, to eastern Oregon, and uh, there's my son Jacob, um, and we have our camera set up on a tripod. we got some filters. Don't ever look at the sun in a camera without a filter on the front, and uh, some special glasses to look at the, the eclipse, and, um, and we sat there, and then the countdown began. Some people had a clock, and they had all these apps on their phone, and so... And so we began to look, and, and as, as the eclipse happened, all of a sudden the light started to dim. We could feel the coolness, the, the, the warmth of the sun started to diminish. It was an amazing experience. And people would talk about how incredible this was. In fact, I met somebody over in Europe once, and she is a professional eclipse chaser. That's right. Her husband makes a lot of money, and all she does is she travels around the world to far-off remote places to look at eclipses. That's all she does and rescue puppies. That was the other thing she does. And so, so I was amazed. I had never chased an eclipse. I don't think I'd ever seen one, maybe a partial eclipse when I was a kid. Again, 74 uh, was the last time, or 79. And so, so we were able to get some pictures. And, um, and there you see some of the beginning of the eclipse uh, through the camera lens, and then a further point to the eclipse. But if you, if you are not in the path of totality, you do not get the full experience. Let me tell you something. You have to be in that path to, of totality. So as we continued, um, here's, here's what began to happen. The famous diamond ring, right? That moment that just a, a ray of sun comes through one of the craters of the moon, believe it or not, and you just get this burst of light, and it's called the diamond ring. And we saw it. It was amazing. It was amazing. And then totality. There it is. Okay? through the camera lens. Jacob got some pretty good shots. And uh, it was just absolutely stunning experience. Um, there was this eerie darkness. All the cows in the field next to us were going, what's going on, guys? And they huddled together. And the lights came on that were in the barn and the stables. And it was just, and there was this 360 degree horizon that was illuminated around us, but it was dark in the middle. It was really an amazing experience. Uh, very, very surreal. Now, I don't feel this compulsion to chase eclipses, but it was, it was a great experience. And as I began thinking, after we were done with that, packed up our stuff and started heading farther east, I began thinking about, as any pastor would, the parallels between an astronomical event like an eclipse and our spiritual lives. Because in an eclipse, we have the eclipsing of the sun, S-U-N. But what I was thinking about was how often the sun, S-O-N, is eclipsed. How in the world that we live in, Christianity is shoved in a corner. They don't want to hear the truth. They want to pursue other things. And even sometimes in the church and in our own lives, other things take precedence. Other things take priority. We live in a world where uh, everybody's on social media in front of a screen looking at what's happening in other people's lives, what someone had for dinner, what they did, what vacation they took. And, and it's all there. And, and everybody's trying to outdo one another. 
Um, we're finding that, that even uh, brides getting married are, are looking at Pinterest, and, and they have to outdo what they see their friends doing on Pinterest because that's what's on social media, right? And it eclipses, can I use the word? It obscures and eclipses Jesus, the centrality of Christ. And I'd like to propose to you today that just as our physical sun and our solar system can be observed in a solar eclipse, we could also experience in a spiritual way, and forgive me for trying to push hard on this parallel, an eclipse of the sun, S-O-N, in our own lives. And it can even happen at Bible college. That's right. It can even happen here. The sun can be eclipsed. So Paul is writing to the church of Colossae because he is afraid of this very thing. He is concerned about Jesus being eclipsed. You see, there were some heresies that were kind of creeping into the church at the time, and, uh, and he's writing a letter of concern to them. Now, about 11 months ago, I had the privilege of um, visiting uh, Colossae, February 2019, going on a tour of the seven churches of Revelation. And some of you that know Revelation are probably thinking, Colossae wasn't one of those churches, right? You're right. Uh, but we happened to visit Colossae. I was very excited because I love the book of Colossians. And I was so excited to go see the archaeological ruins. Uh, we had been to Smyrna. We had been to Pergamon, Thyatira. Um, we, had, we were, Ephesus was the last stop. Uh, that was the, the best of all of the, the visits. But I was super excited to go to Colossae. And as we started driving our bus, our, our tour guide said, you know what, I just need to let you know that you might be disappointed because there's really not much here to see. And so here's a, a couple photos from the distance. All it is is a mound. It's just a mound. It has not been excavated yet. And I was super disappointed because I wanted to see the city of Colossae in its, its former glory, and I didn't have that opportunity. And so she says, well, you know, that's all there is to see. It's not worth getting on the bus. I said, can, can we just have 15 minutes? Because I, I had to get out. And so I, I got out, and then other people followed me out. And, um, and here's, let's see if we can go forward here. And here, went up to the top of the tell or the mound. You, you see there's really not much to see. A couple trails up there. And, um, and here looking out over the, the valley, Lycus Valley. And, and I was thinking about what Paul was writing in Colossians. Uh, even though I couldn't see the ruins, disappointed by that, I was thinking about that. I had a little Bible in my back pocket, and I took it out, and I began to read this text about how Paul is presenting the superiority, the supremacy of Christ, that he is better, that he is the first. And, and I began to think about the significance of that for my own life. And so... I want to share with you a little bit, and I want to give you just a little background on Colossians. I know you probably have studied this in some of your, your classes on the epistles, but Colossians is, a, Colossians is a prison epistle written by Paul, but Paul had never visited. Paul never visited this city. Um, he never came here. He did not plant this church. So he's writing from a distance. He's writing from prison, and he's sharing his concern to, with the believers about uh, encroaching uh, false teaching, encroaching heresies upon the church. Uh, so this was a second generation. These were not first-hand believers. They had received the gospel secondhand, likely from believers from Ephesus or Laodicea had come over and shared Christ with them. But there was this threat. And so Paul, uh, Epaphras was likely the, the, the pastor of this church. We don't know for certain, but maybe assisted by Philemon. And, um, and so Paul writes this letter, having never been there, having never seen them, having never spoke with them. And he, he writes to combat what is known as the Colossian heresy. Now, I don't want to go too deep into this. 
Um, there's six elements of this, and I'm going to just kind of move through it pretty quick because I don't want it to burn up too much of my time. But there were several components of these doctrinal aberration. First, the false teachers stressed the necessity of spiritual fullness that could only come through them. And the false teachers came in and said that they would complete the elementary and simple faith that the Colossians had possessed. The idea is that what you have is okay. You know, those simple truths about Jesus, but let us finish it off. Let us top it off. Uh, if, you, if you get the fullness that we can offer, then you can really be a Christian. Secondly, these false teachers stress freedom. They, they had this duality, this kind of pre-Jewish Gnosticism that the bodies uh, began as dust and one day would return to dust. Therefore, there's really no ultimate purpose in life, which then means you should allow your present desires to kind of control. You can basically expect only evil from the body. Don't try to stop it. They created this dualism that separated body from the spirit. And that was kind of imported from the Greek world. Um, spirit was good. Body or flesh was bad. Therefore, you could kind of just allow your flesh to go whatever way you wanted. And uh, that led to, to that, that could lead to very licentious living. They also promoted asceticism. It's kind of interesting because they promoted licentiousness, but they also promoted asceticism. It was kind of this complex series of, of heresies which taught ritual circumcision, dietary laws, fasting, special observances of certain days were necessary to spiritual growth. And, you know, we have that even in the church today. People say, well, you need to do all these things. You need to have this checkoff list. And if you're doing all these things on the checkoff list, then, you know, you are a good Christian. And that was coming into the Church of Colossae. Contradictory message. You can kind of live the way you want, but you also needed to kind of uh, hold back. And so they got this licentiousness from Greek Epicureanism, and they got the asceticism from Greek Stoicism. And if you don't know what Epicureanism and Stoicism is, ask uh, Andre or Luis. They'll, they'll tell you, okay? I'm not sure I even know what it is, but ask them, okay? Fourth, these false teachers preached a new spiritual insight on how to overcome evil. And this involved the promoting of supernatural powers, particularly angel worship. And it bordered on mystical occultism. I find this in the, in the church today, right? People pursuing, seeking mystical experiences. Fifthly, these teachers offered greater spiritual knowledge of God and a greater experience of His power. They believe that man has fallen, but a good spirit exists within a bad body. And so the bad body needs to be freed from the flesh through a deeper knowledge. That's what Gnosticism, gnosis is the Greek word at the root of that, to know a deeper knowledge. And so they were the aristocrats of spiritual wisdom. They had this deeper understanding. And lastly, these teachers taught that Jesus was God, listen to this, in a phantom body, that he was not, he didn't really possess a real body of flesh. And why this was important, because if really, if Jesus didn't die in a true human body on the cross, then it really changes fundamentally what happened on the cross which really is an attack on the gospel, isn't it? And so this, they were saying that this Jesus was merely a created being, a less than God, and, and the main tenet of, of, of this belief was a man named Arius who came along later on, uh, Arius of Alexandria. And we still have uh, cult groups promoting this heresy today. Among them are our Jehovah's Witness friends and our Mormon friends. And in 325, the Council of Nicaea dealt with that issue once and for all. The son is a very man, is very man, a very man, and very God, a very God. So they dealt with that. You see, Paul was concerned about these things because it was eclipsing who Jesus was. J. Vernon McGee, um, old-style Bible teacher, who sometimes, oops, who sometimes I appreciate, um, he said this, there's always been the danger of adding something to or subtracting something from Christ. The oldest heresy is the newest heresy. Christianity is not a mathematical problem of adding or subtracting. Now listen, Christianity... <coughs> is Christ. 
and him alone. That's what Paul's getting at here. It's Christ. The very basis of Christianity is to know and follow Jesus. We sang a song about that. I want to know you. And I appreciated Corey sharing. It's not just knowing him, knowing the facts about Jesus, uh, the theological facts, which are important. But it's more than that. It's knowing him in a relational, intimate way. That's what it means to be a faithful disciple of Christ, to be a faithful learner and follower of Christ. And yet when Christ is eclipsed in any way, danger is about. And so Paul, what he's doing here is he's systematically kind of dismantling this teaching, infiltrating the church. But here's the point I want to emphasize. The way he does it is unique. The way Paul does it and confronts the heresy is that he doesn't go through every heresy and point out every point of departure from sound doctrine. Do you know what he does? He says, we need to look again at Christ. We need to look to him. Now, he does allude to some of these heresies here and there, but he points us back to Jesus, his authority, his supremacy, his creatorship, his deity, his preeminence. And he says that in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That kind of dealt with the last one I said, that Jesus had a phantom body, right? He says that Jesus isn't a created being. He is the creator. And at the heart of what the false teachers were doing was obscuring who Christ really was. They were diminishing him. Just like being in that eclipse, you know, just that, the light of the sun, the warmth of the sun. It was just an amazing, odd experience, surreal. And when we have something eclipsing the sun, Jesus Christ, we, we don't receive the warmth of who he is, his person, his character, his goodness. Paul doesn't spend a lot of time on the heresies themselves in comparison to the time he spends on Christ. You know, my, my mother used to work as a teller at a bank. How many of you have worked at a bank? Any of you worked at a bank before? Okay. I know things are a little different today, um, but the way that they taught her to find counterfeit bills, you know what they did? They had her spend a lot of time handling the real stuff and the real paper, the real, th- and you get a feel for it. And as you put those bills down, you notice how the tellers at the bank sometimes kind of do it very, they kind of hold it tight, you know, because they're feeling the paper. And, and, and then they would occasionally in their training slip in a, a counterfeit bill. And if you had been familiar enough with the real thing, you should be able to spot the counterfeit. And you know, that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, listen, get familiar with Christ. Keep him as the focal point. Because if you keep him at the center and you don't allow other things to eclipse the glory of who Jesus is, you'll be able to recognize all the other stuff that's bad and deficient. I have to say, I, I, I've got a little personal vendetta or personal concern about some of the things that happen in the church today, you know, where where people create an entire ministry of of putting other people under the microscope, their own microscope in many respects, to try to find whatever deficiency of doctrinal deviation they can find. And and, and while there can be some value to that, especially from people who are being influenced by that, I want to cry out, look to Jesus. Look to Christ. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me who he is. Warm my heart with his excellencies. Because when you know Jesus, you'll be able to spot the stuff that's, that's dangerous. Charles Wesley uh, wrote a hymn, old hymn, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. And what Paul tells us here in these opening verses of Colossians 1 is that this Christ is all we want and need and that he dwells within us. Chapter 127, Christ in you. Did you get that? The hope of glory. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he presents in 
in, 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 in pushing back against these encroaching heresies, he presents the glories of Christ to the Colossian believers so that they wouldn't be persuaded to follow any other particular novel teachings. Now, just looking at the book from above, you probably will get this in one of your classes. It breaks down into two parts. The supremacy of Christ, first half of the book, and then I will call it the submission to Christ. So in the supremacy of Christ, is, this is a very familiar pattern that Paul uses in his Pauline epistles. Uh, he talks about doctrine first. It's very doctrinal. And then you, you, you focus, he focuses on the person of Christ. And then he moves, and that, that switch occurs, the hinge of the whole book. So chapter 3, verse 1, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, this is your position, this is who Christ is, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And so he goes from from the supremacy of Christ to submission to Christ, to the, the doctrinal, to the practical, to focus on the person of Christ, to the focus on our identity in Christ. Do you know that Colossians 3.2 is our theme verse as a college? Maybe you didn't know that. You might see that on some of the older um, logos that we, we publish. You see, to seek the things above, to set our minds on the things above where Christ is, that means to think about him, to focus on our relationship with him. The joy and the intimacy, the sufficiency, the greatness, the goodness of Jesus. So back to that section, again, in, uh, that we read earlier. Um, in this section, Paul, I, he just lets his pen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, run loose. And he concentrates, it's probably one of the most concentrated descriptions of the supremacy and glory of Christ that we have in the New Testament. It's a weighty section. I want to give you a flavor of it. It says, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In him he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Uh, by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. In everything he is preeminent. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He, reckons all things, he reconciles all things to himself. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. That's just going through verse 20. What an incredibly beautiful portrait of Jesus. I don't know, if you ever find your love for Christ kind of waning, if you find things are eclipsing the sun, and I'll tell you, I, I personally find that happens almost on a daily basis for me. Go back to Colossians 1. Just kind of wade in the waters here. If you're ever tempted to follow other pursuits and passions that eclipse the sun, wait around in Colossians 1. You need to soak up the heartwarming excellencies of Jesus. We need to marinate ourselves in this list, maybe even memorize it. Now, when I do Bible study, I kind of brought something to show you here. Oh, it's right here. Um, I like to copy the portion of Scripture that I'm studying. Here it is. And um, copy it on 8.5 by 11 right straight from the Bible. Um, I hope that's not a violation of the copyright from the Lachman Foundation. If it is, please don't report me, okay? But um, I like to do that. And I know I could just print it off of my Bible study software program and, and do it that way as well. But I like to do this and print it off because then I like to be able to write it in. So I wanted to show you, as I, as I took this out, this is what I did before going home on winter break. I just printed this off, put it in my briefcase, took it home, and started meditating on it a little bit more. So here's what I came up with. You might not be able to see it all, but... Um, in this passage, I kind of highlighted some things that just kind of, and maybe you kind of can understand how I think, and maybe, maybe it'll encourage you when you look at Scripture 
just to begin to see the pieces, to see how God put his word together through these writers. And I want you to notice there's four declarative statements uh, you see in the pink highlight there. He is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things. Uh, verse 18, he is the head of the body. And then he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Four declarative statements. He is, he is, he is, he is. See what Paul's trying to say? I want to remind you who he is so that I can protect you from all of the teachings about what he's not, right? And then there's five prepositional phrases, okay? Five prepositional phrases. You see those prepositions? In him, in whom we have redemption of the forgiveness of sins, verse 14. So you could say in him. And then in uh, verse 16, by him, all things were created. And the end of 16, by him and for him. And then, so we have another one. Um, at the beginning of 17, in him again. So you have these four prepositional phrases. And then you have, for those, how many of you taken Greek here? I, I am not a great Bible language student, but I, I had to do it. And uh, I slugged through it, by God's grace, made it through. Um, but, but in Greek, you have this hina phrase. Uh, the word hina in the Greek is, is in order that. It's a purpose phrase. And I want you to see it there. In the verse 18, um, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, here it is. So that, that's the henna phrase. He might come to have first place in everything. I was reading that over the break, and I thought to myself, man, that would be a great goal to have for 2020. That Jesus would be first in my heart, that he'd have first place, that he'd be number one that I pursue him and see him as the supreme person to pursue in relationship with. And so, so these are just ways that, that I kind of think, and maybe it'll help you as you read your Bible. Maybe it's different for you, and, and there's a lot of value just to reading large portions of Scripture and going through it like that. But, but that's how I think. Look for that stuff when you're studying and, and you're reading God's Word. And so he's warning the Colossians against any clever scheme to draw them away from the centrality and sufficiency of Jesus. If you go down that road, it's a dead-end street. That's what Paul is saying. It's eclipsing the sun. And Paul did this with other churches as well. You might remember in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Did you get that? Sometimes we make the Christian life extremely complicated. There is simplicity in our devotion to Christ. Pursue Jesus. Don't, don't let anything eclipse the sun. Keep him at the forefront. Enjoy him. Commune with him. Walk with him. Spend time with him. I said this in the last message I gave um, Last semester, Christianity is not a religion but a relationship. We like to say that all the time, but we don't often practice it. If so, live it. And so this morning, for the sake of time, I just want to go through a few of those key points in those passages real quickly and just kind of highlight a couple of them, okay? So uh, six particular truths, right? Six truths about Jesus here. Jesus is the revelation of God. He is. Now, now notice how Paul says it. After 30 years of someone being gone out of our lives, this is Paul, we would often say what? He was. This is 30 years after Jesus ascended and went to heaven. 
But he uses the present tense because he knows that Christ is living, not dead. Jesus is the exact image of God. We know that no man can see God. It says that in 1 Timothy 6, 16. But by seeing Christ through the pages of Scripture, we see the God who in the Old Testament was unseen. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then, of course, verse 14 of John 1, the Word became flesh. So Jesus is the revelation of God. If we want to know more about God, some of you say, you know, I want to pursue God in my life. I want to come to know him deeper. Then you have to come to know Christ deeper. You have to grow and keep him at the very center, the locus, the core. Number two, Jesus is the creator of the universe. Have you thought about that? Jesus is the creator of the universe. Verse 16, pretty amazing verse. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible. Do you know that he was there? moment of creation? You say, well, wait a second. Yeah, Jesus was there. Father, the Son, the Spirit were moving, and Christ was involved um, at the moment of the creation of the universe. It's amazing. It says that he was the firstborn of all creation. Now, some of our uh, friends in in other uh, groups would say that firstborn means first created. If you go back to the Greek, prototokos means first in supremacy. Firstborn doesn't always mean first created. Jacob and Esau are examples. Esau was born first, but he's not called the firstborn. He is the preeminent member of the two sons, right? And so then Paul shows his preeminence in verse 16 by showing that he was at the very center of the creative design of the universe. And boy, when Jacob and I saw that eclipse, I was like, man, I just feel I had a chance to see this astronomical event, and it just opened my eyes to see how immense and beautiful and wonderful and complex our world is. Do you know that in Colossians 1, there's a lot of similarities to Genesis 1? I found this on the internet, so it's not mine, but um, Colossians 1, be fruitful and multiply, fill light and darkness, image of God, firstborn of all creation, all things created by him, heaven and earth, all creation under heaven. A lot of similar phrases. It's very interesting. So, so Paul is drawing from the Old Testament as he's writing to these Colossians believers. Right? Here's another one. Just kind of walking through this. Jesus is before all things. Oh, let me just give you a Piper quote here. Everything from the bottom of the ocean to the top of the mountains, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from the most boring school subject to the most fascinating science, from the ugliest cockroach to the most beautiful human, everything that exists, exists to make the greatness of Christ more fully known. That's good. I agree with him. Of the many things that Paul could have mentioned that Christ made and exists for his glory, he chooses three, thrones, dominions, and authorities. We can learn more about those in Ephesians 6. We don't have time for that today, but here's the next one. So Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the creator of the universe. Jesus is the sustainer. He's the sustainer. He's before all things. He's pre-existent. Excuse me. I jumped ahead. He's pre-existent. He's before all things. That's interesting. Before Abraham was born, Jesus said, I am. He didn't come into existence at Bethlehem, right? He was there at the beginning. Then Jesus is the sustainer. Let me give you the next one here. Verse 17. He sustains everything by the word of his power. In Christ, all things hold together. Astrophysicists don't understand today what holds an atom together. They haven't figured it out. I know the answer, and I'm not a physicist. It's Jesus. Jesus holds it all together. Christ holds every atom together. Everything on earth derives its life from Christ. For in him we live and move and exist and have our being. Jesus is the head of the church, so he kind of turns from creation out of the church. He's the very control center of the church. 
Just as in business, if you don't follow the lead of the supervisor, the manager, the boss, just like in athletics, if you team members don't uh, follow the lead of their coach, the church is lost if we don't follow the lead of Christ. You know, A.W. Tozer wrote a very interesting little pamphlet once. He called it the waning authority of Christ in the church. The waning authority of Christ. I like that because it, it brings attention to this idea of eclipsing the sun. You know, um, there's really only one senior pastor. That's Jesus. He's the only senior pastor. They, they um, like to refer to me in my previous role as the senior pastor. I'm like, there's one senior pastor. It's Christ. We are just the under shepherds under him, right? Here's the last one, just to bring it to, to light. Jesus is alive. Look at 18b. Jesus is alive so that he would have come to have Excuse me, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he kind of draws upon the firstborn of all creation. Now he's the firstborn from the dead. He's alive. He lives. He's the living head of the church. He's the source of hope. We're all headed for death, but Jesus broke the power of death, which is the sting of sin and conquered death forever. His resurrection life brings us life. If we're connected to him, then we glean the full benefits of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension because we are connected. We are in union with Christ. Christ's life did not end at the cross. So back to the Bible study piece again, okay? So four declarations, right? There's uh, the five prepositional phrases. There's that henna clause, the purpose clause. But I want you to notice what it says. So that he might come to have first place in everything. That's a convicting statement for me. And here's the point. If Jesus is preeminent in everything... If he's all these things, then he should be first in my life, too. I should put him at the very center, Christ at the core. I shouldn't lose my first love. And so I want to offer some suggestions on how to keep Christ first. I'm going to run really quickly because i got four minutes left. Okay? Some suggestions. Here, number one. Do not study the Bible. Do not study the Bible to defend precise doctrinal positions, but rather to encounter the living Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting the doctrine isn't important. It is. But do not study the Bible to defend precise doctrinal positions. Study to come to know Christ. When we're reading this book, it's a revelation of God to us, and we see God most presented clearly through his son, Jesus. The purpose of sound doctrine is not winning theological debates. It is to lead us to Jesus. It is to have us come to know him and love him and serve him in greater ways. And I get a little disturbed in the Christian blogosphere where everybody seems to be taking a shot at everybody else. Certainly there are times to point out doctrinal departures, especially when they're threatening your church. But how about we take as much time and energy in exalting the excellencies of Jesus, because all Scripture leads us to Jesus. All the Old Testament foreshadows and looks ahead to him. All the New Testament looks back to him and reveals the significance of what he did on the cross. The farther we get away from the cross event, the less important it becomes. Just remember that. Here's number two. This is just really simple. Think about Jesus a lot. Think about him. Because if, if, if Christ is important to you, You'll be thinking about him. You know, I think about my wife throughout the day. How's she doing? What's going on in her life? What she might be doing at this particular moment? Um, you know, what's going to happen later this week? Or, you know, what are we going to do together? 
Think about Jesus. Set your mind on him. Remember Jesus Christ, as Paul said, risen from the dead. Do it frequently. Do it consistently. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. There's an old uh, chorus that your uh, parents and maybe grandparents used to sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You find yourself distracted, student? Do you find yourself tempted? Do you find yourself lonely? Do you find yourself confused? Turn to Christ. Think about him. Dwell on him. And as you think about him, I believe you'll desire him even more. Here's another one. Pray for passion. Pray for passion. You know, just a few days ago, um, January 8th, marked the 62nd anniversary of the martyrdom of five men who were down in Ecuador. This happened before I was born. Um, um, down in Ecuador, trying to reach an unreached people group, the Huaroni, or the Aka tribe. And they were all killed. One of them was a guy named Jim Elliott. He's a guy that I had read when I was a teen and a college student myself. I read his journals. And of course, one of his famous statements, you might have heard this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He had such a passion for Christ, and he was so authentic. He would talk about his struggles with purity, his struggles with, with pursuing God, his failures, his temptations. But he had passion. And we need passion. You know that Christianity is more than just a cerebral activity. It's not just a cognitive exercise, folks. It's a love relationship with the Savior. And when you love someone passionately, you pursue the person you love. Here's another one. Surround yourself with people, like-minded people. And that's part of the reason we love having you here at NBC, because uh, hopefully our prayer is that all or most of you are, are heading in the same direction here. But you know what? When you see someone who's passionate about Christ and their life just emanates, uh, the sun is not being eclipsed in their life in any way. It's just, it's all about Jesus. Spend some time with them. Pursue them. Get to know them. Ask them questions. You know, because it's contagious. That kind of passion is contagious. You say, well, should we have relationships with unbelieving people? Yes, of course. But I hope and pray that your deepest friendships are those with people who are passionately pursuing Jesus. Here's number five. I'm going to move quick. Put others first. You know the passage in Philippians 2? You guys know it, right? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, he says, well, what, who's the perfect example of this? It's Jesus. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Kenosis, emptying of Christ, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. You know, I, I just think when we put others first, we're allowing Jesus to be first. Because that's what he did. He did not consider his own interests as first. He, he considered our interests, our need for redemption and salvation and forgiveness. He put us first. So what does this look like even in your, your, with your doormates, your roommates, your, your fellow students? How about putting others first? How about not being so concerned about how others view you, what others think of you, who likes you, who doesn't like you? How about just saying, you know, I'm going to serve other people. I think that's one way to let Christ shine through. And here's the last one. Make your academics an act of worship. Yesterday was the start of a new semester. A couple weeks ago, start of a new year, a new decade. I think Corey, and, and Corey and I didn't even talk, but he said it so good. Don't just study to get a good grade or to pass a test. Study to come to know Jesus. 
Make it an act of worship. You know, I'm digging into this book. I'm digging into scripture. I'm digging into the original language. I'm learning about this ministry. I'm doing it as an act of worship. And what I produce and what I study and what I give back to those who are teaching me in in the form of assignments or papers or whatever is my act of worship to Jesus. I'm offering it to him. Well, I could give you more, but that's all I have time for. I've already used up all my time. So let me ask you, what will it take to make Jesus first, to put him first, so that he is preeminent in your life? Would you think about that this week? Would you think about how to keep Jesus first this semester? I will be praying for you. Our staff will be praying for you. And we hope that we together can continue on this path because we're in the, the journey with you. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we've been able to dive into Colossians. Thank you, Lord, for this incredibly rich text. Thank you for the encouragement, the inspiration it brings to us to not allow anything to eclipse the sun. And so, Lord, we pray as we begin a new semester that you would endow us with strength, that you would empower us, that you would equip us to fulfill your will and all your good purposes in our life. And I pray for these students, Lord, as they pursue their studies, their academics, help them to pursue you, your son, Jesus, and to see and bask in all of his excellencies, all of his glories, to come to know him in a deeper way. We thank you for this time and all God's people said, amen.